Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the Two Fit Podcast, hosted by the Two Fit guys, Jake and Josh. Now, Two Fit, by definition, is actively pursuing a state of health and well being beyond perceived limitations. So, if you're looking to push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between, then you have come to the right place. On the Two Fit Podcast, we will be interviewing and having fireside chats with renowned experts from doctors and strength and conditioning coaches to athletes and entrepreneurs. Our goal is to extract tools and tricks of the trade that you can implement, whether you're a world-class athlete, weekend warrior, entrepreneur, or grinding out the eight to five, all in order to assist you on your journey to becoming Two Fit. Welcome to another episode of the Two Fit Podcast, and today we have a very special guest, the founder of Zero Shoes. His name is Steven Sashin, and if you are not familiar with their company, they specialize in barefoot shoes and sandals, and uh, we're going to dive into maybe why you need to start going barefoot and uh, the ins and outs of Shark Tank and a whole lot more. So Steven, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I was just um, amazed thinking of your intro, how different it would be when you say special guest versus we have a special guest. <laughs> <laughs> just the words stay the same, but the meaning, whole different things. So I'm glad you picked the one you did. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for being on, man. We're excited to, to dive into all things barefoot and zero shoes. So Let the fun begin. Yes, sir. Well, give us and, and everybody out there just who's not familiar with zero shoes and, and your background, just a little bit of how you came to where you're at today. Okay, so when a mommy loves a daddy very much, has <laughs> that gone back too far? Um, so about eight or nine years ago, when I was 45, I, holy smokes, that's nine years ago. I just realized I'm, I just turned 54. Uh, when I was 45, I got back into sprinting after a 30-year break, and I was getting injured constantly. I, was, it, I don't think I could go more than two weeks without ripping, tearing, pulling, breaking something. And after a couple of years of this, a friend of mine who's a world-class cross-country runner said, why don't you try taking off your shoes and see if you discover anything from doing that? So now I'm a competitive sprinter. I run the 100 meters. I don't even take turns on the track. My training partners tease me. They go, I think you have a phobia of the other side of the track. And I say, that's ridiculous. How can you be afraid of something that doesn't exist? So, um, so I go for this barefoot run and I am so transfixed, so caught up in all in the experience the sensations what happens if i change my gait if i move my feet faster if i change my cadence make it slower if i land on different parts of my feet that i didn't really pay attention to how far i was running at the end of this run someone had a gps watch on i said how, how far was that and she goes that was a little over 5k it's like i'm sorry what <laughs> so um I, it just blew me away now at the same time I ended up with a big blister on the ball of my left foot. Now, most people in that situation, I have discovered, will say, oh, I got a blister. That means this is not for me. I had a different thought, which is how come my right foot is fine? And also, how come my left leg is the one that's getting injured more often? I figured there may be a connection. And so the next week, I went on my second barefoot run with this gaping hole in the ball of my left foot. And I thought, if I can find a way to run that isn't causing pain, then that probably means I'm no longer doing the thing that caused the blister and the problem to begin with. I'll give myself 10 minutes, see how it goes. At the 9 minute and 30 second mark, I had been just going through, you know, pain, 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 pain. And then something changed. In one step, I went from excruciating pain to 
totally pain-free, light, easy, effortless. Uh, it, it was just amazing what had changed. And within a couple of weeks of continuing to practice that, my injuries were gone and basically never came back. I became faster. I became more efficient. And what changed was that I was, especially with my left leg, I was reaching out. I was overstriding. I was getting my, having my foot land way in front of my body. So every time it hit the ground, it was like putting on the brakes. And then I had to try and reaccelerate by pulling it across the ground. And those two things together uh, were causing all my problems. So all that said... I wanted to be as close to barefoot as I could, as often as I could, to continue to get these benefits and get this, these movement patterns ingrained in my body. And I knew about the Tarahumara Indians from Mexico who run hundreds of miles in sandals that are made out of scraps of tire and some leather lace. And I grabbed some rubber or grabbed some lace from Home Depot. I started whipping up some shoes for myself and some uh, other local runners. And we loved those. And then people asked for more. And then other people asked for more. And that kept going. And then finally getting to the end of the story. Finally, uh, this one local barefoot running coach, a guy named Michael Sandler, says, you know, I have this book coming out called Barefoot Running. If you treated this sandal-making hobby of yours like a business and had a website, I'll put you in my book. So I rush home. I pitch this idea to my wife who tells me it is a ridiculously horrible idea and it won't make any money and it's a waste of time and it's a distraction from other things we're doing. And I said, "Um, yeah, you're probably right. And she goes to bed around 9 and by 10 I had a website and it just took off. Um, so we launched November 23rd, 2009, and it has just been a whirlwind ride ever since. Um, and so now, up till now, we've helped over 120,000 people in 94 countries feel the fun and benefits of natural movement, whether they're running, walking, hiking, paddleboarding, working out, doing yoga, doing CrossFit, pretty much everything you can think of. Uh, and uh, it's accelerating dramatically going into 2017 with some big retailers coming on board. Wow. Well, I feel like we could go in so many different directions with all that. So let's, let's <laughs> kind of slowly unpack that. My first question, though, is what got you back into sprinting? Why the 30-year break and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I want to get back into sprinting now? That's an interesting question. I So I actually stopped sprinting when I was in high school uh, because – Everybody else got taller, and I stayed in the five foot five range. And the track coach we had, who was also, I think, the science teacher, uh, didn't really know what to do with that. So he switched me over to long jump and pole vault. I was also doing gymnastics at the time, and it just seemed like um, it made us made sense to switch to being a gymnast full time. I was an all American gymnast and doing some crazy things way back then, and just never really thought about running. Um, it was not; it, it just wasn't in my brain. Um, I kept actually, you know what it was? I, I just realized this. I, like most people, confused sprinting and running. I never really put two and two together that I was a sprinter and not a runner. And so over the years, I kept trying to put on some shoes and go for you know a couple of miles. And man, I hated it. And it wasn't until... And I kept trying all these other things in between, by the way. So I, I blew out my knee as a gymnast when I was 32. I kept looking for something to do. I was doing circus things. I was doing you know, Chinese pole and crazy acrobatic stuff that wasn't hurting my knee. Um, I got into competitive rope jumping. And then one day... Uh, at brunch, a friend of mine comes in, and he had just won his first 5K. He'd been running for years, but he just won the first for the first time. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, you know, I love this idea of running, but I was always the fastest kid in school. I was always a sprinter, not a runner. And he goes, you know, there's a whole master's track and field circuit where they do all the events, including the 100 and, you know, things for sprinters. And I went, no, I did not know this. <laughs> and so he hooks me up with a coach, and, you know, from the moment I stepped on the track, um, it was just like coming home. I just, I, I was so happy 
even when I was getting injured all the time, I'm, I'm hobbling across the kitchen one day, and my wife says to me, totally, totally curious, she goes, are you having fun? And as I could barely walk, I said, oh, my God, more than you can imagine. <laughs> so um, it, it just, it, it was like a homecoming. It was the best. Well, if anywhere in the world had a master's competitive uh, track and field team, I, I would imagine that would be in Boulder, Colorado. So Actually, um, there's a lot of master's runners here. <clears throat> A lot of former Olympians. In fact, tonight there's a track meet, that, and it's an open track meet that is called Olympic Day. And there's probably going to be a dozen Olympians, um, current and past, from different events, not just running, uh, who are going to be there. And but when it comes to sprinting, there's not a there's not a big sprinting community here. We've put out some really good sprinters, but Colorado is just not known for sprinting because of the weather. Um, unless you've got a really good indoor facility, in the winter you're kind of screwed. And so. Um, uh, great master's track scene, not a great master's sprinting scene. I've got, if I want some real – like in the, in the whole sort of Midwest region, I'm one of, if not the fastest guys. In fact, for men over the age of 50, you may be looking at the fastest Jew in the world right wow. now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I saw that line in the Forbes article this year, and I, I didn't yeah, want to throw yeah. – I was waiting for you to bring that up. So. <laughs> uh, well, there it is. Um, but, I mean, if I go to the coast, if I go to California or to Florida or Texas, uh, Texas is not a coast, but it's warm, uh, that's where there's some serious competition. And that's where there's you know about a dozen guys who are who are faster than I am. I also wanted to ask when when I was reading going through your story, you talk about the I'm going to butcher the the name of the tribe was Tara Humara. What? Not bad, not bad. <laughs> if you're going to be if you're going to be sound like an American, you'd say Tarumara. <laughs> if you want to sound like one of them, you say Tarumara. Tarumara, Tarumara. So oh, nice. the, the first question that came to my mind was when they're saying they're running fifty to six, 60 miles, you know, at a time. Yeah. Well into their seventies and eighties. Yeah. Why? why? Why are they? What was the need? Because <laughs> um, they don't have cars. <laughs> but I'm totally I mean, serious. It's like that's how they get around. Is and it's not like it, when we think about the think about running sixty miles. Um, it, it, the way Americans tend to think about that is that you're running for speed without stopping, mm-hmm. and that's not the way they do it. Um, but but nonetheless, I mean, it's literally the way they get around is running from place to place. Hmm. And what what kind of pace are they averaging it for for a sixty mile run? Oh man, that's a really good question, and I used to know the answer to that, um, but I don't off the top of my head. It's not. I imagine it would take them a couple days, right? This wasn't like a hey, let's go sixty miles today. No, it'll often be in a day. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. It's like yeah, an ultra 60, marathon race or uh, ultra distance. Yeah. You know they do like yeah, exactly. If you, th- if you th- if you think of a if you think of a any any ultra like a sixty mile ultra, I mean that's a it's a long day, but it's a day. Mm-hmm. So I mean, do you think it's a a sub seven minute pace? I, I, I honestly don't know. I ironically or paradoxically or annoyingly for sure, I haven't had time to go down. First of all, again, I'm not a distance runner, so the odds of my hanging out with them for a few miles is slim. It's like people call me and, and, and our retailers will call me and say, hey, why don't you come out and visit and we'll go for a run? I go, yeah, I don't um. – <laughs> They go, no, 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 just like a couple miles. I go, all right, all right, look, we go to the track first, and you run a 12-second hundred with me, and then I'll go to your couple of miles. They go, I can't run a 12-second hundred. I go, that's my point. So mm-hmm. um, so I'm sure I could keep up with them for, for a mile, but that would be it. Uh, I haven't had the time. We've been so busy running zero shoes. I haven't had the time to go down to the Copper Canyon like I planned to the day we started the business. Uh, and then it just, again, took off, and we haven't, we've, been, we've been balls to the wall ever since. So um, I'll have to track down some people who've run with the Tarumara and find that answer. I I just don't know. So for people out there that, that haven't seen the shoes or the sandals, explain, and obviously we're going to link to this in the show notes um, and, and put some images in there, 
on the webpage, but explain to people what you built with the rope and the, and the rubber and, and where <laughs> it's transitioned and maybe not to its full scale now, but kind of the yeah, progression yeah. there and, and what that actually looks like. Well, the simplest thing to think about is this is a, a variation on a 5,000 plus year old idea. So, uh, this is mankind's favorite footwear since, you know, 5,000 BC, or as I like to say, what we're doing is not rocket science, or as they said, when they, invented this shoe it's not rock science uh so it's the simplest version our do-it-yourself kit that we first came up with was literally a sheet of rubber that you cut out in the shape of your foot and then you take some lace can be pretty much anything and you have it come from a little knot underneath the underneath the sole between your first and second toe so it's not um uh, it's not underneath your foot. It's in front of the webbing of your toes so you don't feel it. And then it comes up between your toes, and then it goes um, down to the the outside, uh, around the, the, the um, a spot around the outside of your ankle, and then it kind of wraps around the sole there, and then it goes around your heel, and it wraps around the sole on the inside of your ankle, and then it goes back up to the front where it's coming from between your toes, and you just tie it off. I mean, it's a really simple idea. It's amazingly simple. People look at it, and they go, that can't be useful you can't run in that you can't walk in that i go no 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 um we've had ultra marathoners wear these it it's it's a basic three-point sandal design except that it has this heel strap so what holds it on your foot is the fact that it goes all the way around your foot that it's not a flip-flop where you have to jam your toes into the thong or you know grip with your toes in some unnatural way to hold it on it just it's the simplest most elegant way to hold the sole hold some protective um, barrier on your foot so that you can make it across different terrains without problems. And what's evolved over the years has been just uh, different materials for the for the rope. So either leather or hemp or jute or you know anything like that. Or of course, as we get more modern, polyester, nylon, polypropylene. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Paracord, uh, various things like that. And then the soles have evolved too. So it went from originally leather to uh, or woven materials, and then of course to rubber. Uh, the Tatarmara again use scraps of used tires. That's pretty common all around the world, actually. And what we've done is we've developed our own rubber. We call it Feel True Rubber that gives just the best combination of flexibility so you get natural movement uh, and durability so that it doesn't wear out really fast. Uh, or, you know, frankly, isn't uh, um, the Tanner Meyer sandals, when you use an old tire, those things can last forever, but they're like bricks and they're really, really stiff. So we were going for a, something that gives you great protection but also lets your foot move naturally and get enough uh, feedback from the ground, enough ground feel, so that your brain makes the appropriate adaptations to your stride because if you have too much protection between you and the ground, you don't feel anything and you can adopt some really un... What's the word I'm looking for? Not unhealthy. Well, definitely unhealthy, but uh, inefficient stride patterns. So when you put cushioning under your shoes, cushioning under your foot, ironically, you will try to use the cushioning. And when you use the cushioning, you'll keep your joints locked and straight or more locked and more straight. And that sends a giant spike of force through your joints. Whereas if you're really feeling the ground, uh, doing that hurts. And so you adapt a, uh, a gate where you're using your muscles, and ligaments, and tendons as the natural springs and shock absorbers they're supposed to be. And then, sorry, last but not least, and then we've just evolved um, from that. We started out with the do-it-yourself kit. We made ready-to-wear products where I invented a variation on this lacing system that we described that just makes it easier to get it on and off your foot. And then we did a sport sandal style. Uh, so instead of having something coming between your toes, there's a webbing style that goes across your foot, similar to what we're familiar with with sport sandals. And then in the fall of 2016 and the spring of 17, we start releasing 
closed-toed shoes that are based on the same sole design that's all about natural, natural fit. So it's actually uh, fits the shape of your foot instead of squeezes your toes together. Natural flexibility, natural function, so your foot can move the way it's supposed to. And again, natural feel, so you get the appropriate amount of ground feel so that your body and brain work correctly. So really, Zero Shoes formed out of the desire to be barefoot basically 24-7, How, with, with a little bit of protection also in there as, yeah. as well, yeah. but also that's to how, be a little bit... That's how it started. But I want, I want to take the word sure, sure. barefoot out of there and, and okay. replace it with nat- natural. It's, it definitely started as, you know, how can I stay as close to barefoot as possible while having a layer of protection mm-hmm. and some style? And what's evolved for us is... Um, is simply that we barefoot is like a dirty word for some people. Um, they get some people don't like the idea of being barefoot. Some people love it. Some people are afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the major shoe companies have tainted it by making claims that barefoot is bullshit in various ways, and uh, they mostly because believe it or not, they're trying to sell shoes. And if they make something that was either barefoot or really, really, truly minimalist, close to barefoot, it would it would violate the entire. Uh, um, unique selling proposition they have for all the rest of their giant padded motion-controlled shoes. So they came into the market with, quote, minimalist products, that most of which are no more minimalist than a pair of stilts. And then they, um, and then they in the same breath, basically said, hey, this is really nonsense and we're not going to do it anymore. Um, and so there's this whole conflation between barefoot and minimalism that was created by the shoe companies just so they could sell product into this growing interest of barefoot natural movement. So for us, the idea is really about natural more than about uh, barefoot because we know that some people need different amounts of protection at different times. For example, with our Z-Trail, our newest sandal, it's a 10 millimeter thick feel light sole. So it's, it's the ultimate hiking sandal really or backpacking or camp shoe because it's really, really lightweight, really, really thin still, only 10 mil, um, really flexible so you get great natural movement. But it gives you the kind of protection that you need if you're going to be on a really aggressive trail. And so that's the balance that we're always playing is how much ground feel do you want, how much protection do you want based on what you're actually going to be doing and who you are. For some people, they really need, we think of the Z-Trail in a way as our gateway drug. It's like, hey, just, you know, give it a shot and see if you like it. Um, or it's our, it's the puppy clothes. Take the puppy home for the weekend and see what you think. Mm -hmm. And it's so comfortable and still gives you such great natural movement that people are really blown away. And once they've had that experience, we can say, now, if you want to go for something that gives you even more ground feel, even more of a barefoot natural feeling, here's our other products that do that as well. So um, uh, everything that we're doing, we're committed to, again, natural fit. So it's foot-shaped, natural flexibility and function, and natural feel. And that's that's really the way we're, we're structuring our business. Well, it makes it a little easier to be accepted by society, too, you know, obviously, because, frankly, I mean, here in Texas, I know if you're walking around barefoot, you're going to get some looks. (laughs) Yeah, well, you you get that pretty much everywhere. I started doing this thing. um, uh, At first, I started going through airports, and after I'd go through security, I wouldn't put my shoes back on. (laughs) And then I just stopped putting them on by the time, you know, when I went to the airport to begin with. And uh, it's really entertaining uh, watching little kids say to their parents, Mommy, he's not wearing shoes. Uh, (laughs) just, Just a riot. And then... The last trip I took, um, I'm getting on an airline. I won't mention it by name, but it rhymes with Blouth West. And, um, the guy, the guy at the, at the gate says, you, you know, you can't go on the plane barefoot. I said, why not? He goes, it's a federal law. I said, no, it isn't. He goes, well, it's a Southwest law. I said, no, actually, it's not. He goes, well, it's my law. I went, I don't think you can do that. And so, wow. he, um, so he's getting all pissy at me. And actually, it's a really interesting thing. 
almost every airline, when you buy a ticket, the ticket is a contract. And in most airlines, the contract does say that they have the right to remove you from the plane um, if for, among other reasons, you're barefoot. Wow. And I said, why? And they said, uh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe because your feet smell. It's like, well, my feet don't smell, so that can't be the issue. Well, uh, some people don't like seeing bare feet. Hey, it's summer. Everyone's wearing flip-flops. And by the way, look at the number of people who get on a plane and just take off their shoes. So why is this a, a, a rule in the contract that's like 30 years old and no one has an answer? So uh, I'm I'm juggling the... The ba- or I'm balancing my desire to poke at people when they have stupid rules that make no sense and my need to get on a plane to get somewhere. I- I'm waiting to, to book a flight where I don't really need to go, it doesn't really make a difference, <laughs> or I'm not in a rush. And then if they kick me off the plane, it'll be, hey, you know, barefoot shoe company owner gets kicked off plane for being barefoot. That'll be awesome. <laughs> That's an idea. I like it. <laughs> well, Steven, you were touching a little bit earlier on kind of the running dynamics and the, and the pattern and yeah. this counterintuitiveness of having these thick-soled shoes. But when people will, like ask Jake and I, oh, what kind of shoes do you, do you wear? What do you recommend for obstacle course racing or just running right. in general? Um, and you look at them, you're like, well recommend a minimal shoe at least and, and yada 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 they kind of look at you like well what's going to pr- protect your foot or provide cushion my joints are going to kill me let's back up and think about this logically which is challenging for a lot of people so shoes are the intervention people have been doing all these activities barefoot or in something so close to barefoot you know very thin leather sole very thin upper for thousands and thousands and thousands of years without a problem. You go to third world countries where they don't have big padded motion control shoes, and guess what else they don't have? They don't have podiatrists. They don't have people going to orthopedic surgeons because they've blown out their meniscus. They don't have the issues that we've been uh, developing since the invention of the padded motion control running shoe back in the early 70s. The, there was, uh, here's the incredible thing. We've now been living with these products for long enough, two generations, that people think of it as the natural way, as the normal way. But it is not. It's the intervention. And so there was a study done recently uh, on injury rates between barefoot runners and runners in shoes. And now I'm not going to get into some of the nitty-gritty other than to say some of the, quote, barefoot runners had never actually had their bare feet touch the ground. They were in minimalist shoes. But regardless, what the research showed was that there was basically very little difference in injury rate between the two, except that the barefoot crowd had less plantar fasciitis, and the, some of the injuries that they counted for the barefoot crowd was things like splinter or stubbing your toe. Uh, and, and what they concluded, they said, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference. And the way that was reported in the press is, see, there's no reason to go barefoot. It's like, whoa, back up. What that says is with 45 years of development in footwear, they haven't been able to make a shoe that reduces injury. That's the news. It's a scam. The idea, the, the people look at me, they go, well, what's your proof that barefoot's better? It's like, no, 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 no. Where's the proof that shoes in any way reduce injury or improve performance? That's the real question because there is none. And, and it's not like there's not incentive for it. If you could make a shoe that reliably reduced injury or, or improved performance, that's worth billions of dollars. Why hasn't anyone done it in the last 45 years? And the answer is because the fundamental premise is wrong. It just doesn't work that way. So the first thing they did with um, with shoes was make higher padded heels, which made it so that you not only could but almost had to land on the padded heel. Now, if you look at your heel, if you look at the calcaneus, it's a ball. A ball is not a stable thing. There's no muscles around that to keep your foot or your ankle stable when you land on that ball. I mean, think about trying to balance on a big 
big uh, fitness ball. So what happens when you land on your heel is you're landing in an unstable uh, on an unstable surface. And then amazingly, they discovered that when people landed on their heel with these big padded shoes, they were either hyperpronating or hypersupinating. What a shock, because you're on an unstable thing. So then they had, had to build in motion control. And suddenly, motion control and padding are like the thing that everybody needs, even though it all evolved because they were trying to fix a problem that they created to begin with. So the answer to the question, what protects your knees, what protects your joints, is it's this crazy thing called your muscles, ligaments, and tendons that have been doing that job for a million years. So, uh, the number of reports that we have from people who say, I, 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 I wasn't able to run, wasn't able to walk, wasn't able to hike till I took off my shoes and or put on zero shoes, uh, and I'm not saying that as a plug, it's just that's what happened for them, it, it is, I mean, in the thousands. And the reason is that when you're... When you get rid of all the padding in your shoes, um, doing something wrong hurts, and your brain is not stupid, and it will figure out how to work with your body to use your body in a way that allows it to work correctly um, and without putting that kind of force through your joints. One of the things that made the whole barefoot movement totally take off was research that was done by Harvard's Daniel Lieberman, and actually a number of other people have done the same research. But what he showed is that when you're running in shoes, the moment your foot hits the ground, there's this very rapid spike of force. He called it an impact transient force spike that goes up through all your joints. And that when you take off your shoes, that spike goes away and that you start using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons as the natural springs and shock absorbers that they are. So that was uh, sort of revelatory and, and it really made the whole barefoot movement take off. But it was also a little misunderstood because people didn't know that that didn't mean that all you had to do was take off your shoes and you'd be fine. That there's actually things that you needed to pay attention to and some ideas about what your form should look like to make that work, you know, to get rid of that force and to uh, also not rip up your feet or to improve your running by not applying braking forces every time you land. So it was, an, it was a great, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of high concept to say here's why this does what it does uh, and then the how is a slightly different thing and that's what we started getting into. Stephen, why do you think with all the money and resources behind the big shoe companies, we won't necessarily name names, but when this this big heel pad came out in the 70s, why they didn't reverse that and go, maybe we had it wrong? Yeah, um, the shoe world I've discovered is full of copycats and fast followers. So if they make a product and they put it on someone's foot and that person wins some race, everybody just jumps on the bandwagon and says, well, that must be good for you. And away it goes. And so, in fa I mean, here's a great example. Just look at what's happening with the, quote, maximalist shoes right now. So Hoka comes out with this shoe that is a, I mean, it's, you know, two inches high and it sells a whole bunch for whatever reason, in part because of the rebound from the minimalist idea. And within one season, suddenly there's one, two, three, five companies I can think of that are copying that whole idea, even though there's zero research to prove that it's in any way beneficial. What's the real difference when you get down to it between the minimalist shoes and the zero shoes? <sighs> Convince okay. me. All right. So most minimalist shoes are minimalist in name only. They're lightweight or lighter weight, um, but often you, you'll hear people um, say things like, well, you know, it's got an eight millimeter drop, which means the heel is eight millimeters higher than the toe. But, you know, that's just like barefoot. It's like, no, no, no. Barefoot means that it's zero. Or, you know, it's a zero drop, but there's still an inch of padding underneath the sole. Like, no, no, that's not it. So 
the whole idea of minimalist, again, was an invention of the shoe company so they could capitalize on the interest in barefoot and, and make the same claims about barefoot um, with their minimalist products. But there's no evidence that those products do the same thing. In fact, there is evidence, there's some studies showing, that people in minimalist shoes don't make any of the form changes that happen if someone's actually barefoot. So with zeros, A... Uh, especially with our sandal line, they're made so that they fit your foot. So um, a lot of minimalist stuff, like the Nike Free is the best-selling minimalist shoe in history. Mm -hmm. It squeezes your toes together because it's really tight up there. It's got a big arch in it. It's got a heel that's about, you know, there's like an inch of padding underneath it and a big elevated heel. What? So we're the opposite (laughs) of that. Uh, So what zero shoes are, they're zero drop. They're thin enough that they are actually really flexible and really let your foot move naturally. They, again, there's different levels of protection they give you, so different amounts of ground feel. Um, And it's, um, the other thing is a subtle one. When you have something over your toes and you go to lift your toes up, which is a natural part of the gait cycle, if you have something over your toes, any sort of fabric, for some people, the majority of people actually, that little bit of feedback, that little bit of resistance of having something over your toes will um, change the way you run. It'll change the way you move your foot. So with our sandals, obviously that's not an issue. Now, I will confess, we're coming out with closed-toed shoes in the fall and in the spring, and we've designed those so that they're as flexible, as lightweight, as minimalist as possible. Still zero drop, still really thin, still really light. But I'm in the same way that I say zero shoes are not the same as barefoot because it's as if they replace the entire surface of the earth with you know a layer of thin layer of rubber. That's not the same as feeling the variable and variegated um, surface that you feel on your foot when you're just barefoot, barefoot. We're just as close as you can get with a layer of protection. We're trying to do that same thing with our shoes too. And if you look at our minimalist shoes when they come out compared to anything else, you'll see a dramatic difference. You'll see that these really are zero drop, really thin, crazy flexible, crazy lightweight, all the rest. So again, our commitment is natural fit, natural feel, func- and natural flexibility and function, and, uh, and natural uh, feel. So say you have somebody who wants to get into more barefoot running or into the zero shoes themselves, is there any sort of transition period that has to take place? I'm sure that's a common question to get. It is a common question, and it's an interesting one. Um, that it often comes up with things like, I have a marathon in a week. How do I r- run it barefoot? It's like, whoa, whoa, back up. <clears throat> um, so the, and the answer is it, it's, it's, it's going to be slightly different depending on who you are. The gist of it goes like this. Take off your shoes. Find a nice, smooth, hard surface. Go for a very short run. And if it isn't fun, do something different till it is. Now, let's unpack that. Take off your shoes. Barefoot is always the best way to learn because you're going to get the most feedback. Find a nice, smooth, hard surface. Same thing. If you're running on grass, aside from the fact that you don't know what's in the grass, um, God knows what you could be stepping on because you can't see it. But running on a padded surface is just like taking the padding from your shoes and putting it in the ground. You don't want to do that. You want a nice, smooth, hard surface. You get the most feedback. Do a very short run. 30 seconds, 200 yards or 200 meters, depending on where you live. Um, like really, really tiny. If you're not having fun, do something different until you are. The do something different part, this is where it gets interesting. Or if, like, if it hurts, do something different until you're having fun. Some people literally can't tell if it hurts. The, their brain has so, well, technically what has happened is the brain map has so de-differentiated. Uh, in other words, they're, they've spent so much time not 
using their feet or feeling things with their feet that they literally can't any longer. And they need to spend a bunch of time just walking around so that they can reawaken the brain so that it feels things from your feet and can send information back about how to move your feet. Some people can feel things, but they're not very good at moving differently, that, you know, do something different until you're having fun. They often need video coaching because they'll say things like, why am I getting, you know, blisters on my heels? I totally forefoot strike. It's like, no, no. If you're getting blisters on your heels, you're not forefoot striking, I assure you. I've literally had to show people video of themselves running. Mm-hmm. They were trying to convince me that they're midfoot or forefoot people, you know, landers, but they had things happening on their heel. And I sent them, had them send me videos. And there are times where I've literally had to go frame by frame. I show them that they land on their heel and they have literally said to me, well, that's not what I do. I go, that's a video of you, dude. You sent me the video. You could have picked any video you wanted. So, uh, so some people, but it, it's literally, it's just a proprioceptive thing. Some people don't have the same proprioceptive skill, so they're not as aware of what their body is doing as they think they are. Some people can feel things, good, good at moving differently. They just need some cues about what to do. Things like try to have your ankle land behind your heel. Try to have your foot moving at the speed that the ground is going underneath you. Increase your cadence slightly so that you have less time on the ground. Don't push off the ground, but lift your foot off the ground by flexing your hip. Um, uh, Don't worry about where on your foot you're landing. Just try and make it as light, fast, and easy as possible. Lean forward and let yourself run, but have your feet... Try and get your feet behind you, and they can't catch up with you. You know, these are all cues that you can give people to try to get their foot landing closer to their center of mass, to pick up their cadence a little bit so there's less force on the ground, to pick up their their speed so that there's um, less likelihood that they can still overstride. Or I like to say you don't want to land on your feet. You want your feet to carry you around uh, across the ground at the speed you're already moving. Um, Danny Dreyer has a great cue. Think of your feet as being on a wheel, and you want your foot to just barely catch the way the bottom of a wheel just barely catches the ground. So those are just cues that people in that third group need um, so they can experiment. The fourth group, they're naturals. They take off their shoes. They go for a run. They're having a great time. Everything's working. The challenge with them is they will have ignored the do a very short run part. They'll have so much fun that they're going to go out for way too long and then get tired and regress to one of those previous levels. So, um, so, but the key is that last part, you know, do something different until you're having fun. If it's not enjoyable, you're definitely doing something wrong undeniably. And so use, you know, what can I, that mantra, what can I do to make this faster, easier, lighter, more effortless, and more fun as the guideline to experiment as you're making that transition. And then for people who've been doing a lot of mileage, who are saying, well, how do I transition? Because I've already been running five miles a day. I'm not going to just go cold turkey. Um, It's like, yeah, just add a little barefoot run at the beginning of one of your runs, and then maybe add a barefoot run to the beginning of two of your runs, then three, then four, then five, and then extend the amount of time for the barefoot. So it's a transition from... Uh, from what you've been doing to being more barefoot. And the zero shoes part, just put them on. I mean, it's the same idea for the transition, but it, but the gist is just put them on. Now, there's one little caveat to that. Um, I've seen people adopt really weird form habits when they're barefoot and, again, not know it. So, like, they still overstride. They reach out and catch with their toes and then kind of I call it catch and release. They catch in the front with their toes and they pull the ground underneath them and then they push off with their toes. But they found a way to do it at a certain speed and with a certain amount of knee bend so that they're not getting a whole lot of um, uh, extra force, but it's still not proper running form. And so then they put on a pair of zero shoes and they go, hey, these things make a slapping noise. And I go, no, um, actually, I'll run next to you and watch what happens. And they go, why are you silent? I go, because I'm not doing 
that thing you're doing. So with zero shoes or any of the sandals, frankly, you get another bit of feedback, which is sound. And the question is, what can I do to make this quiet? And sometimes when someone says, hey, they make noise, I go, let's run up a hill and see what happens. And they start to run up the hill and suddenly they're silent. They go, what just happened? I go, well, you're not overstriding and slamming your foot into the ground when you're going up a hill. So as we get to the crest of the hill, try to keep that same gait pattern going and you'll see that suddenly you can run quietly. So the the additional feedback is actually great. It's the shoes helping you become a being your own coach um, in a way that you are getting different kinds of information than you would get while barefoot. And so um, the the last thing I'll say about making the transition is take your time. There's no rush. You've been doing whatever you've been doing for however long you've been doing it. It's not going to fix itself or change itself overnight. And, oh, actually, here's a thing related to that. If the transition feels frustrating, that's not a sign that you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing it. Frustration is actually the physiological experience of a neurological process. So if you try and learn a new movement pattern, it's going to, quote, feel frustrating because your brain is literally trying to break out of a groove and lay down new neural pathways. That is a not energy efficient thing to do. Your brain does not want to do that. It's by nature, it just wants to stay in a groove. And so the frustration is just the neurological phenomenon of trying to learn something new. And the learning actually happens in the rest period after you've done this little bout of experimenting. So you'll notice that you'll try something, it'll feel kind of weird, you'll feel clumsy, you'll feel dopey, you'll feel awkward, you'll feel frustrated. And then if you give yourself some time to rest, your brain is going to process what you just did. And if you go out the next time, it'll be a little better, even though you didn't practice in between. And so we, we forget that the learning cycle is bouts of seeming frustration followed by rest, followed by improvement. And that's a continuous cycle. So you've got to keep that in mind that, you know, you're learning a new thing and that's what it's going to take to go through it. And then and, and the other part, the problem with that is that um, as you start to master something, you don't get some big dopamine hit that goes, ah, I did it. Mm-hmm. It just frustration just goes away. So often we have to look back and go, oh, wow. Remember two weeks ago when running 200 yards was frustrating and difficult and hurt and now it's effortless. Right. I got to remind myself that I've actually improved. And so that's the, that's the entirety of making the transition in a minute or two or three or however long that took. Given the world we live in today is, is very much a concrete jungle for most, is there a difference in, yeah, strapping them on to go run, and what if a guy says, well, I, I would like to take this leap in a more natural approach, but I stand on concrete eight hours a day in my job. Awesome. Concrete's fine. So what you're referring to is what I refer to as the anti-naturalistic fallacy. So the naturalistic fallacy is, hey, if people did it previously in some natural way, it's got to be better. Um, The anti-naturalistic fallacy is having the idea that um, people lived in some idyllic, soft, padded garden that now concrete is completely antithetical to that. And what we're doing now is so far removed from history that it can't be any, in any way the same. Um, It's not true. If you go to the places where human beings evolved, not only are many of those you know, packed clay surfaces as hard as concrete. There's also rocks and twigs and sticks and things that you can step on that are way worse than standing on concrete. So what I can tell you is, here's a visual that goes with it. The surface is not an issue. It's whether you can move naturally. So your foot is designed to bend, deflect, and feel. If you don't let it do that, if you're in things that can, that 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 insulate you from the ground, um, that don't let you move naturally, that don't let you get sensations in your feet, that don't let you make these little micro movements with the intrinsic muscles in your feet, then that function, and that's designed for balance uh, among other things, um, that function will then try 
to move upstream to your ankle, your knee, your hip, and your back, those joints are not designed for that micro movement and that kind of function. So that's why you can end up with ankle pain, knee pain, hip pain, back pain. You take off your shoes and standing on a concrete surface is not a big deal. First of all, you're not standing still the whole time. You're going to be moving a little bit. And secondly, your feet can bend and flex and move and it takes the pressure off those other joints. When we go to trade shows, which are just concrete floors, Every time we go, we'll have at least one new employee who has done this for years and years and has for years, if not decades, tried to find the right shoe that will allow them to stand up all day on a trade show floor without having back pain at the end of the day. And they frankly go in worried because they haven't done this yet in zero shoes. And what happens at the end of every every time it's happened, at the end of the first day, they go, uh, I feel fine. <laughs> And at the end of the second day, they go, I still feel fine. At the end of the third day, they're fine. At the end of the fourth day, they're fine. We had so many reports from, from cooks. From um, uh, There was actually a couple who was helping with um, Antiques Roadshow. And they show up to help with the, the production. And same thing. It was on a concrete floor for, for days at a time. And they showed up in their zero shoes. And the production company says, um, you have to wear shoes. And they said, well, this is all we have. And at the end of the day, and this is like a 70-year-old couple. At the end of the day, they're totally fine. Everyone else is lying on their back in pain. So it's the surface is not the issue. It's whether you're letting your body move correctly, function correctly. You're letting the appropriate joints do their job and not trying to force the wrong job onto the wrong joint. We've heard that you're, you're pretty much a serial entrepreneur. And so what, what were you doing before Zero Shoes? Well, right before um, this, my wife and I were essentially retired because of some of the business things that we had done. Um, I invented the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. Uh, it's a program called Scriptware. It's actually being re-released. Um, I hosted an internationally syndicated uh, television show that was sort of like Car Talk Goes Computer, so it was a comedy computer fix-it show. Um, I have, oh gosh, I've done a whole lot of things and I don't remember what they are. Um, I... Um, I've been an internet marketing consultant. I was one of the first internet marketing guys back practically before there was an internet. Um, I, from 1992 to uh, 1980, wait, when was this? <laughs> I have to figure out how old I am. 1983 to 1993, I was a professional stand-up comic. Um, I somehow in that time got a master's in film. Um, I, uh, yeah, I've done a bunch of stuff. Wow. If, I were a few, if I were just a few years younger, they would have uh, um, Adderalled me out of all this. <laughs> Um, it's never occurred to me to do something like, um, what do they call it, get a job. I just never thought about doing that. It never yeah. struck me as the thing to do, and so yeah. I, never, I never did. What sort of uh, education did you, did you grow up with? Uh, I was raised by wolves and most of them were in the <laughs> law of the job. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I went to school, I went to school, I went to school. Um, right. I, my undergraduate, I, my, I did undergraduate research in the cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition, uh, uh, which is basically how your brain works as you're learning some new physical thing. Uh, I also did some research on whether humans have an innate sense of rhythm, and the answer is yes, we do. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, by the way. No difference between the two. I did that research, and then uh, and then after uh, as an undergrad, I was a pre med, um, but then decided not to go to medical school in part because the kind of work I wanted to do that I had already been doing with clients, uh, they were telling me that I needed twelve more years of education to be able to do it as a doctor. And I went, that's eh, that's too far for me to think. So I um, so I then decided that I might go into business, and I took the the GMAT, the test that they, they used to get into business school. Um, I apparently did okay on that and got a letter from um, 
um, a prestigious business school saying I could come for free if I wanted to. And I said, no, I think I'm going to do stand-up comedy instead. And that's what I did. I have a question for you on that natural rhythm part. Because it seems like, I mean, yeah. some, some people would have more rhythm than others. And for example, we have an athlete that we sponsor. And no matter what song comes on, if you ask him to either clap or snap to the beat, he cannot find it. He just has like an innate <laughs> rhythm disability. So those are two different things. Um, the research I did was whether you can actually perceive rhythms and the ability, the difference between perceiving and then being able to do something with that information are two different things. So it's kind of like, think about people that you know who speak a foreign language perfectly, but they sound like Americans speaking a foreign language mm -hmm. versus people you know who just sound native and they might not even speak perfectly, but they sound like they do. In fact, there's people who can fake uh, languages who are saying gibberish, but it sounds perfect. So the, the, there's just different um, processes for different aspects of rhythm. So the way that we did the test for the fun of it is we – I had a professional drummer make a, a series of rhythms of various degrees of syncopation from something really simple, bump at the bump at the bump at the bump. I mean there's no – there's nothing in there to something so syncopated that at the end of hearing this little eight bars with a rhythm, you just want to kill someone. Uh, mostly people wanted to kill me because I was the guy running the study. It's like so unpleasant to hear things that are not rhythmic. So anyway, we present people with like eight different rhythms. And then we have them wait for a while, and then we present them with a number of other rhythms, some of which they heard before and some of which they hadn't, and just ask, did you hear it? Did you, have you heard it before or not? Universally, people thought they failed the test, completely thought they failed it. And universally, people passed the test, and then there was no difference in gender, no difference in race. Suffice it to say, the, the only difference in recognizing rhythms had to do whether people have the ability to perceive information uh, without using a ling linguistic filter. Uh, I know that sounds really vague and crazy. It's not worth getting into. Um, actually, I'll say it this way. Some people, they just turn everything into some language to represent it. So people like to think that dancers are um, – they're in their body. But dancers are actually some of the most language-bound people we met. What they did is they turned bodily movements into sort of like a code, a linguistic code that they would use to be able to reproduce them. And they were really good at translating bodily information into an almost, an almost unconscious verbal – uh, dialogue or verbal monologue that they used it to know what they were doing. It's you know it's a it's a two step this and I don't I don't know anything about dance so I can't do those. But but they they um, they were not very language uh, uh, they were very language bound. The only language optional people that we met who stayed language optional through their through their whole lives were orchestra conductors. For some reason, there was something about the way you conduct an orchestra and how you have to process information coming in and going out that they were the most flexible people uh, cognitively that we ever met. It's really interesting. Well, I mean, this guy, he can put 400 pounds over his head, so he doesn't need to be, you know, he's all right <laughs> without it. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. Um, like, I know a guy who's one of the smartest people on the planet, uh, just crazy, crazy, crazy smart. And he was dating a woman who used to say to him, you need to get more in your body. And I would say, tell her to shut up. You're designed to do that really, really smart, brainy thing. You're not designed to do that body thing. That's not who you are. And um, so, yeah, there's no bonus points for being one way or the other. It's just do the thing that, that you do best. So, Stephen, let's transition a little bit. And... Um... I know we're excited and, and interested to talk to you about the Shark Tank experience. Um, people may have seen you on the show um, a couple years ago. and I can't I'm tell just, you how many times people come up to us knowing that we're 
you know, a startup and they're like, oh my gosh, you guys need to be on Shark Tank. You have to get on Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah. It's like, thank you for yeah, that advice. That's how it started for us. <laughs> yeah, it's a dime no, a that's dozen. How it that was totally, first of all, if you haven't seen the episode, you can go to zeroshoes.com slash Shark Tank um, and, and you can see it there. And that's how it started for us as people were coming up to us saying, you got to be on Shark Tank. We're going, what the hell is Shark Tank? Yeah. And so then we looked it up and we went, oh my God, we have totally got to be on Shark Tank. And so we sent them an email um, and got no response because I discovered later that we sent it during a time when they weren't casting. Mm. So once I discovered that they cast during a finite window during each year, the moment I heard they were casting, I sent them another email, and then we sent them a video a little little while later. And I was just about to go to one of the live casting sessions they do in Chicago. I was going to fly up there, and practically the day I was booking the flight, I got a, we got a phone call saying, hey, we got your email, um, let's chat, and we had a long talk for about an hour. And at the end they said, um, Send us a video. Make a little five-minute video that you that you send us by Monday. This is on a Thursday, and uh, that's our next step. And I said, not a problem. I can knock that out in no time. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, uh, my wife had been planning a surprise 50th birthday party for me that weekend, so she's panicked, uh. and uh, ev- everything went off without a hitch. I was surprised. We had a great party, and we got the video done uh, in time to send it off on Monday. They also have this really thick application that you need to fill out and um, it has to be handwritten for some reason and you can't read my handwriting or Lena's handwriting so we got on Craigslist and hired someone to handwrite our answers. We sent that in and then they said, hey, we want you on the show. And so they said, actually, they said, we want you on the show. It's going to be about eight weeks from now. Uh, Then they call us three weeks later and say, hey, we need you out here in three days. So I don't know if that was just because television is crazy or they're trying to constantly keep you off guard. Either way, uh, we did as much preparation as we could. We did mock Shark Tank sessions with some CEOs that we knew who'd been on the show or tried to get on the show. We talked to bankers and VCs and shoe company owners and shoe company buyers to get a sense of our valuation. I mean, we did a lot of research for, gosh, the the time from the the moment they said we want, we're interested in having you on the show to the time we were on the show. I think the only thing Lane and I ever said to each other was the pitch, the first ninety seconds that we were going to say when we were on the show, just to make sure we were going to get that down. And then you show up, and um, you know the sharks don't know who you are. They know nothing about you. You don't get to talk to them. You don't see them before or after. You just walk on, and you do it. Now the difference is, if you're out there, or if you see the segment where it's like eight to twelve minutes, you could be out there from anywhere from twenty minutes to two hours. We were out there for about forty-five minutes, I think, and they edit it to make it looks like a conversation, but in real life, it's not a conversation. The sharks are trying to. Uh, score points with each other to make good television. They're making a lot of notes. They're rarely paying attention to you all at the same time. And it's, uh, it's weird. You go out and, and there's Mark Cuban and there's Damon and there's Kevin and there's Barbara and there's Robert. Like you've been seeing them on the show all these times, except now there they are. And the, the good news is the cameras are all hidden. So you don't have that feeling of being on camera, but you have to be very clear that these are not your friends. While you've seen them, they have not seen you. And so you can't be too friendly because if you are, invariably you're going to say something really stupid, something you did not intend to say to a possible investor that you would have said to a friend. So it's a, it's a surreal experience of being there. Lena describes it. She says, you think that it's a television show about bu- – uh, you think it's a business show on television, but it's a television show that happens to be loosely about business. Mm. And so – the moment you walk off the set, we realized, wow, they could edit that and make it look like whatever they want, which I knew going in. I have a master's degree in film. I know how to edit stuff. I know that's possible. But to experience it was like, oh, oh, my, this could go. Who knows how it could go? 
And so from the moment we taped to the moment we aired, which was seven months, uh, it was – and you don't know if you're going to air. They tape more segments than they actually put on the air. So after you tape it, you're just waiting to hear are we going to be on TV or not. And they don't tell you till about two weeks before you air. You get an email, hey, you're on in two weeks. And we took a vacation. We went to Ecuador at the end of December to visit some friends. We used a bunch of frequent flyer points, and we knew that the show wasn't going to be doing any new episodes at the end of the year. Business was going to be slow at the end of the year. So we go to Ecuador. We land there, and practically the next day, hey, you're going to be on Shark Tank in a couple of weeks. Like, ah! <laughs> so um, our vacation turned into a working vacation. But um, then it aired, and we couldn't have been happier uh, even though they took out some of our slam dunk answers. So like when Damon says, it's just rubber and string, I said, Damon, you of all people know that a brand is more than the components of the product because mm-hmm. what he made was FUBU, which was, you know, ink and cotton. And Cuban says to him, perfect answer. Uh, <laughs> at one point, Robert, at one point, Robert jumps out of his chair and he says, you guys have a perfect answer for every question. And we just looked at him somewhat shocked. We said, this is our business. Right. So, uh, but Uh, We get this offer from Kevin that we turned down. It was a great thing to turn it down. The show was tremendous for us. Um, We could not be happier. We're trying to hopefully get a follow-up. We'd like to show them how the show has helped us dramatically. And our fingers are crossed that we can pull that off sometime in the next year. So even going in there and not coming out, I mean, you had an offer. And the sharks were, quite frankly, you know, a little shark-like. But this is still something you would recommend and you're happy that you went through with the whole process? Thrilled. Um... I like when people say to me, well, you know, I got this business, but I don't think I want to be on Shark Tank. And I go, why would you not want mm-hmm. to be in front of 8 million people? I mean, that just makes no sense. And so uh, when people say that to me, what they really are saying is that they don't think they'd be able to handle being on the show. They think that they'd um, end up looking bad for some reason. And it's possible to look bad and still make the show do well for you. I, I was consulting with a guy. He was supposed to be on the show, and then they decided not to use him. Um, I said, so talking to me about your product and it was a um, health a nutritional supplement so all the ingredients are right on the back on the label easy to copy and he had no business experience I said so what have your sales been in the six months since you started this he goes six thousand dollars I went oh no, no dude that's not good that mm-hmm. means you haven't really sold anything yet and I said and, and what's your what are you asking for he says well I want to give away 30% of the company for eighty thousand dollars I said so wait you have a quarter million dollar valuation and you sold $6,000 for the product, and you know nothing about business, and the product could be easily ripped off. I said, all right, here's the deal. They're going to make you look like the biggest moron in the world, and it doesn't matter. If you say what I tell you, or variations of it over and over and over, you're going to be a millionaire. And here's what you say. Whenever they say something like, you know, oh, you're an idiot, you have to be able to find in yourself where that's true, where you think that sometimes, where you can find why they would say that. And you need to respond totally non-defensively by agreeing with them and saying, you know, look, you're right. I'm just a kid who during his last semester of college, when he should have been out partying every night, instead invented a product that solves a problem for me, my family, and six and a half million other people. And I'm just here to have you help me get that solution to those people. If you can just say that over and over and over and your website or your, you know, the name of your product is your website, you're going to be a millionaire. You, know, you also have to be committed to your business because if you do this, you're going to need to spend $100,000 to buy enough product to handle the response you're going to get. But remember, you don't know if you're going to be on the show. You might have a great episode, but that doesn't mean you're going to be on TV. And so how committed are you to your business? Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't end up on the show, uh, and he also wasn't that committed to his business. But suffice it to say, as long as you 
as long as you know what you're doing, as long as you can have a conversation without having to get defensive. Because look, there's nothing that anyone could say to me, no criticism, no complaint, no disagreement, where I can't find a way that what they're saying is true, where I can't agree with that in some level. Were you a kind of in a large waiting room with other businesses waiting to go on? Uh, no. Um, they keep you pretty separate. So we were in a little green room with one other business that was actually a friend of ours, someone who also ended up uh, on the show, which was a surprise to get there and go, what are you doing here? <laughs> and then, then they put you in a little holding room right before you go on with a bunch of noisy fans so that you can't actually hear what's happening uh, on set. And then you walk on the set and away it goes. Now, how how long ago was this for you guys? A couple years, right? Two, three years. Um, we we aired uh, three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. So we wow, we taped almost four years ago when our company was really really new. Yeah, what's I mean, what's changed for you guys since? <laughs> Everything. Um, so at, when you see the show, all we had was our do-it-yourself sandal-making kits. Now we have all this ready-to-wear stuff. It was just basically me and Lena and. Um, we had um, a customer service person helping us, and we had a shipping person helping us. Uh, now there's 11 of us, and we're soon to be 13. Wow. We've got some incredible talent working with us. The former head of global product design from Crocs, employee number 18 from Crocs, who is their head of inside sales. We're talking with the former CEO from Crocs about investing. Um, we're, uh, I mean, it's, it's dramatic. I mean, again, with the, the new products that we've developed, both the sandals and the shoes, things are exploding uh, we went in for a meeting with a major, major retailer just a couple of weeks ago, and the first thing they said is, hey, we saw you on Shark Tank. And so that was definitely a part of the fact that they're picking up our product and basically going to double the size of our business overnight uh, starting next year. Wow. So it's it's going like – I mean we everyone has a sign above their computers. It's a photo or a still image from a, a particular movie with a particular line it, it's written on it. It says, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> and – uh, and things are just moving really, really fast. It's it's ridiculously exciting over here. So I know whenever Shark Tank first rolled out, whenever you agreed to be on the show, I, I think it was ABC, uh, would end up taking like 3%. So the, the reality of it was that when you signed the contract, the contract said that the network uh, and the production company have an option to either get um, – equity in your company or 2% of your net profits. Mm. But it was an option. And at the time that we taped, they had only exercised that option once that we knew of and that had been negotiated down. Um, Suffice it to say, we did the math and realized it would be worth it even if they did exercise the option. So we were happy with that. Totally okay. But they've since removed that option and they removed that clause and they've made that retroactive. So there's no no downside at all. Yeah, I knew they had taken away... uh, Later on, I think it was Mark Cuban's idea to say to just kind of we might be driving yeah. people away from the show because of this rule. But yeah, um, I, I don't think it was actually his idea. Mm. I, I think it was a conversation that had been going on for quite a while, and um, and Mark publicized it. But I, I know that it, it it had been an ongoing conversation for quite a while. And I know there was one question that Barbara, um, well, it wasn't really a question. She said that she felt like one of her problems was the knot underneath the shoe and that in between your first and second tone you didn't really get a chance to address that so barbara's biggest problem wasn't the product her biggest problem was that she hated me so the line (laughs) the line she had um she said um i hated you from the moment you walked out here you remind me of my ex-husband oh that's right and 
Yeah, and um, uh, and she kept going. I mean, that was just the beginning of it. But she kept going. In fact, the night of the show, I tweeted to her, "You should have invested in the company. I would have used some of that money for plastic surgery." Uh, <laughs> but, but no, she said, "Yeah, I don't like the knot underneath the toe, and I don't like that they're black." And what you see me do, actually, you see the next shot. I'm pointing to something, and what? I, pardon me, I got the hiccups. What I was pointing to was that there was five colors of soles that were sitting on the table right in front of her, and that some of them didn't have knots underneath the toes. Uh, and so her perception of the product was somehow skewed, uh, and I was trying to show the reality of it, but that did not go anywhere. She was done by then. Do you still do the kit, or is it just um, sizes now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, the, the, the do-it-yourself stuff is still about 20% of our business. Um, people really love what I like to call the superpower of knowing how to make your own footwear, uh, or also known as the post-zombie apocalypse career change, because if the zombies come and you know how to make shoes, you're going you're gonna to have a good job. And so uh, people really love it. There's so many things you can do with the, the kits. Um, we're actually trying to, to beef it up a little more and make them even easier for people to use and more accessible and have more options. So that's never going away. That's, it's way too much fun. I know Mark had brought up that he felt like there was an industry bubble that was about to pop, and that was kind of what was holding him back to an extent. Do you agree yeah. with that? Well, no, clearly. Yeah. Um, the What happened was that so the whole minimalist barefoot thing was growing dramatically. I mean, it came out of nowhere and turned into 20% of the footwear industry in two years. That's unheard of. So, But the idea that it was a bubble isn't, didn't, is not borne out. What happened is it's flattened out, and it's still like 15 to 18% of the industry. But that's a huge amount of volume. And, so, and just because a particular space has flattened out, that doesn't mean there's not an opportunity for a brand within that space to pull, a, pull ahead. And that's what we're in the process of doing. So even um, – and regardless – um, well, the simple thing is no, it was not a bubble, but the rapid growth leveled out. Um, minimalism and barefoot did not take over the entire shoe industry, and no one expected that it actually would. So that argument, I think, was just a little, uh, a little off base. Was there ever a time when you were starting Zero Shoes that – not where you contemplated putting it on the shelf or stopping, but was ever a time that you were kind of scared about the future? Uh, I'm scared about the future every moment, but not for the reason that you're thinking. I, I mean, the, 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 look, we all know the, the one thing we know is the future is completely unknown. So on the one hand, um, we are constantly concerned about what unknown thing may happen that may affect us. But at the same time, we just don't operate based on that because there's, it's out of our control. So we just do all the things that we can that are in our control and keep moving forward um, while being very cognizant of what the future could look like. So we're, 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 we're moving into a very crazily dangerous situation, and that is that our business may grow by almost 10 times in the next 12 to 18 months. Rapid, rapid growth is very difficult to manage, um, and we, we luckily are working with people who've done that multiple times before, but um, uh, basically I run things... How, how do I describe this? Um, I've never thought of stopping anything um, everything's been been growing too well to 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 even contemplate that. But if you're not con- continually worried about what might happen tomorrow or next month or next year, then you're delusional. That's great. I know there's a lot of our audience that are that are small business owners, and with all the endeavors you've been through and doing some consulting, what's what's you know the best advice that you've received and taken to heart? Um, well, I didn't take it to heart. 
But the best advice anyone ever gave me was get a government job with a pension. Mm. So uh, the <laughs> I'm serious, man. Uh, I'm, I'm at the age now where I have friends who are retiring with sixty to one hundred thousand dollars a year tax free for the rest of their life. I could not be more jealous. Um, now that said, this could go way way better than that. But the entrepreneurial life is uh, fraught with peril, and there's no guarantees. Now, the thing about get a government job with a pension. Anybody who would listen to that advice uh, will <laughs> probably end up being better off on average, but uh, they, they shouldn't be entrepreneurs to begin with. And anyone who's really an entrepreneur would ignore that advice no matter how sound and sage it is. So um, the, when we were getting into this business, we met with a bunch of guys who had had 30 years of experience in footwear. They all met at Reebok when it was, geez, a quarter of the size, actually less than that, uh, uh, and one-sixth of the size that we are now. And they kept saying to us, we would love to start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid enough to start another shoe company. And Lena and I literally said, oh, we know that we're being completely naive and hyper-optimistic, but what else are you going to do? I mean, that's the only way to start a business is by not knowing what you don't know. Uh, if you know enough, you would never take this step because it's crazy. Absolutely. What's what's your big hairy ass goal with zero? Where, where do you see it in ten years? Um, well, my big hairy ass goal is to take over the entire footwear industry and, and replace all shoes with the stuff that we make. But that's not going to happen. There are hundreds of billions of dollars of vested interests. So even if we had a better mousetrap that was demonstrably awesome, uh, they would not go down without us without fighting. And so I, I, I harbor no illusions about um, changing the world. But honestly, I love the idea of changing the world. I love the idea of giving people an opportunity to continue to have natural movement um, that, you know, proper fit, proper function, proper feel for their whole life. My father a year ago was – how do I want to put this? Um, my father was one of these guys who wore shoes his whole life and just shuffled around as a result of it. And a year ago, he tripped on something, fell down, broke his hip, and two weeks later was dead. The number of people that we've gotten emails from who were in his age range, which is, you know, 80 plus, who have said, wow, I started going barefoot and wearing zero shoes, and I'm regaining my balance, and I've thrown away my walker, and I'm running and hiking and walking is really high. Um, had my dad decided to wear my shoes, but he was a little competitive with me, so he couldn't bring himself to do that. Uh, he might be alive today. The, when we see kids go from running naturally with incredible, impeccable form to then having all these issues when they put on big padded motion control shoes to prevent that, we, I, I love the idea that we could be part of making that kind of a, a, a change on the planet. Is it going to happen? I don't know. But that's the direction that we're heading is that we, we know that what we're doing is beneficial. We don't have enough money yet to get the science to back us up and prove that. That's one of our other soon-to-be-done missions. Um, we've had a number of independent test labs look at our shoes and test our shoes. Um, but they haven't done – like they've done pilot studies and they go, wow, these things test better than anything we've had in our lab yet. But we haven't been able to uh, afford to pay them to do all the actual – science. And frankly, that I know if I'm the one who pays them, people are going to go, yeah, but you paid them. It's like, it's an independent test. Eh, whatever. Anyway. Um, so there's, there's that issue as well. Um, but, and, and, and even if it, this is, this extends way beyond zero shoes, beyond our company, there are a number of other companies who at least, at least profess to be, um, proponents of natural movement. And we want to make that a thing. We want, 
the idea of natural movement, natural footwear to be as obvious to people as natural food is to them, that they know that natural is better than processed. And that's our big goal. Now, personally, um, you know, if someone writes me a big enough check and I, uh, and I have to talk to you from my island about this, that's okay with me too. But um, we know that there's a there to, there to what we're doing. We know that when people say, well, you know, prove it, that the burden of proof is on shoes, not on us. But we're willing to do the work to be able to demonstrate that what we're doing has value for people of all ages, for people of almost, I'll say almost any activity. Because look, um, I'm a competitive sprinter. When I'm sprinting, I'm in spikes because that's the thing that's better for sprinting right now. But even sprinting spikes are not designed properly. And so we have a, you know, we have a fun mission of, of redesigning the sprinting spike and even the track surface that you run on to become better for people as well. So uh, we're, we're trying to build a company and a movement from the ground up, literally, through, you know, foot first. And, and whatever it takes to make that happen is, is what's on our list. So, Stephen, Josh and myself would argue that we're not just a, a product company, but we're really trying to create a movement, especially in the health and fitness space. And I think you're along those same lines and fall into that category. But still, at the end of the day, we do provide a product, right? We provide a service. And one of the biggest Absolutely. issues for people is bringing that product to the market. What's your path to market? And so what was the smallest change that you made in terms of that that yielded the biggest results for you? Well, Shark Tank. I mean, other, other than that, um, oh, boy, oh, boy. There's so many. There's not a single thing. There's just this, the, the never, you, you never know what, look, even if I said something, you wouldn't be able to necessarily copy that. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily helpful. But um, it's the never-ending series of little things. It's making more, making more videos, making more blog posts, doing more conversations like this. It's, it's just this, it, there's this cumulative effect, just doing more and more and more to help people and provide a good service and provide a good product and provide, I mean, we, we have competitors who sell products that frankly, I, I don't believe are anywhere close to as good as ours for twice the price of ours. We know we could charge more money for what we're doing, but we're not going to do that because we believe in offering things at a, at a price that is affordable and we don't want to get into arguments about price. Um, we, Lane and I would never sell anything for a price that we wouldn't want to buy it, which means we're not making as much money as we could because we know we could charge more, but we're not going to. The simplest thing I can say is that that every major thing is, is at least equaled by the ongoing daily little things. Um, and although I will add, there's one, the way we started the business is by giving away all the secrets of our business. So we, I made videos and made PDFs that were all, uh, just here's how to do it. Here's how to go make your own sandals. And I gave it away. And those videos have gotten over 2 million views. And I would meet people who would say, wow, you know, I watched all your videos and I made all your sh made shoes based on that, but I've never bought anything from you. And I'd say, great, <laughs> knock yourself out. That's why I did it. So I'm, my goal is to be as helpful as I can um, and, to be, and to participate in the conversation about what we're doing and, um, as much as I can. And then, um, you know, it's, boy, if you saw my to-do list, it's a thousand items long and we just try to check off a couple every day. That's really all we can do. Well, man, I don't know if, uh, if you're not ready to put down the uh, space shoes that you've been wearing for God knows how long. I don't know what's going to convince you to do so. So I know Jake and I are excited to hop in a pair. And uh, Stephen, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Absolutely. We're going to get out to Colorado sooner than later, too. Oh, sweet. Well, definitely come out and say hi, and we'll have some fun. Yeah, sounds good.
Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Two Fit Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Two Fit USA, the sports nutrition company owned and operated by the Two Fit Guys. To show our appreciation for you tuning into the podcast, we would like to give you a 10% off your entire order at TwoFitUSA.com. All of our products are sugar-free, paleo-friendly, gluten-free, non-GMO, and a whole list of other buzzwords. So hop on over to TwoFitUSA.com. Don't forget to use your promo code FIT1, that's F-I-T-1, at checkout. We highly value and appreciate your feedback, so please leave a review about the products and the podcast at our website, 2fitusa.com, under the podcast and products pages. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Now, if we happen to read your review during one of our podcasts, you'll receive a one-month free subscription of all 2Fit products. So write something noteworthy. If not, we probably won't read it anyway. So go leave a review, listen to the next episode, and till next time.